0: Wow! Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. We are diving into a brand new series on Ephesians. Yeah, Yeah, this is a great, great book, a great letter, and we're gonna go uh, bit by bit. Sometimes we teach topically here, and then sometimes we just uh, will dive into a book and just just go right through and follow the author's train of thought, and that's what we're gonna do here. Um, And uh, uh, so it's gonna be great, hopefully. So my task this morning is threefold. I first wanna give you the background of uh, Ephesus, uh, the recipients of this letter, talk about the city. Uh, second is to talk about what happened when Paul went to the city in Acts chapter 19. Um, and the third is to, to go through chapter one itself and to follow his train of thought, okay? Does that sound good? So we're gonna do that, but first we're gonna pray, because I need prayer. <laughs> you don't even know. Lord, help us. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for the encouragement in there. Uh, And help us, Lord, to to understand what you have to say. Help me to speak clearly uh, the words that you've put on my heart for this. And uh, um, just join us here, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, Ephesians. This is a letter written by Paul to the churches uh, around Ephesus. It's probably uh, what they call a circular letter to be passed around. He doesn't greet individuals by name in this. Um, So it's believed that it's not only to the church in the city, but in the region, um, which will make more sense when you look at what actually happened when he was there. Um, Ephesus was a, a, a port city. It was the most uh, important city in the province of Asia. Now when the Bible says Asia, don't think about the giant continent. Think about basically Western Turkey because it was a province called Asia. And uh, so there we have it. It's right on the coast there of, uh, of Western Turkey, right across uh, the Aegean Sea from Athens. Um, here's uh, um, an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like. Um, Ephesus was the most populous city uh, of the most prosperous and populated province in the whole Roman Empire. So this was a big metropolis here. It was a major center of commerce, of uh, political power, and of religion. And the, the, the people were crammed in the city like sardines in the most populated places. They say it was upwards of like 200 people per acre. We're living. So it's like, you know, the equivalent of like slums in modern big cities today. Um, And that had real repercussions. When people are packed in that closely together, all kinds of things can happen quickly. Ideas spread quickly. Anger can spread quickly. Um, All kinds of things happen and people swarm. And that was very much the environment. It was like an electric environment there. It was really something. so good good and good things and bad things could happen quickly um here is a uh a picture of this edifice that was sort of reconstructed this was the library um of celsus it was called which was the the largest library in the empire um it had something like fifteen thousand scrolls which for that time was was massive now you can hold all of that on your kindle um not, not a problem um so, uh, but it was, it, this was a, a major center of, of learning um, in, in addition to commerce. So you had places like this. You also had lecture halls where, um, you know, visiting speakers could come and, and just sort of camp out and, and people would flock too. Um, you had um, all kinds of major buildings and, uh, uh, you know, that were very important to the empire. In fact, they had a temple Uh, dedicated to Julius Caesar himself. And one of the things I think we don't realize uh, when we think of religion in the Roman Empire, we usually think of the Greek gods that were then co-opted by the Roman gods. You have Zeus who became Jupiter or whatever. That's usually the, the, you know, when we think of religion, most of us probably, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Interestingly enough, the cult of Caesar was every bit as big. And Probably bigger at times. People worshiped Caesar as God. And so he was very much worshipped in Ephesus, especially the man Julius Caesar. Um, And uh, so, anyway, the city had a lot happening. One of the other things it's famous for is this building, this uh, uh, open amphitheater. Um, This was also, they say, the biggest in the empire. Uh, it could see, I've seen different numbers from 25,000 to 50,000 people, um, that would be in these, that could sit and watch a play or they would have gladiator type, you know, events of men fighting against beasts and things like that. And also political rallies could happen there. So this was a huge, huge, um, theater and this becomes important, um, in Paul's story in a little bit. What the city is most known for is this. Uh, the Roman goddess Diana, a.k.a. Uh, Artemis. Um, Artemis was the goddess of the moon. She was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the wilderness, so she had a lot on her plate. Um, she, <laughs> that was a joke, guys, isn't it? Um, she, she, uh, uh, this was her famous statue. They, legend had it that this statue had fallen from heaven, and um, she was a... Uh, uh, she she was sort of like the the, the matron goddess of the whole region, the area. So this was, she was theirs. So if you came to Ephesus, like she might be worshipped other places, but she was theirs. This was, you know. um, So she was really important, um, not only for their mythology, but for their practical, economic, and political living. Um, You had, for example... Uh, little replica statues that would be sold by silversmiths all over the city. So, you know, I've been to New York a few times and when you're in New York, you can go into all these little shops or whatever um, in Times Square or even there on on the islands where you can get little Statue of Liberty, you know, little, you could put it on your keychain or whatever, you know, your little ones or big ones or whatever. This Statue of Artemis is kind of like that. You can come back with a Artemis necklace and who wouldn't want one? Um, very important to the economy, okay? Now, the, the statue of Artemis was in this building, which is called the Temple of Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is what the city was really known for, was this temple. It was massive. It was 350 feet long, 150 feet wide, and the pillars were Gigantic i 've seen like the numbers I say about sixty feet high, these pillars, and it was up on like the high point, so it's up on a hill, it's, it's gorgeous, and you see it as like I say it 's a port city, right? You could see it as you're sailing into the harbor, it's just like floating over the city. like there it is, it's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's shining white, and it's alluring because the reason the temple exists is not only for religion, but for financial stuff and for sexual fulfillment. You see, people would visit the temple because Artemis was a fertility goddess. And so among all these pillars were temple prostitutes, all around male and female, young and probably just young, all over the place. And so people would go and they would pay their respects, to the goddess, they would give silver, and they would visit one of these prostitutes. So it was, this was such a successful venture that this temple also became basically the bank. So you have religion twisted with sexuality, twisted with the economy, and the, like it's all just this, this gigantic thing, okay? This is what the city was most known for. So in other words, Ephesus is a place of immense power, religious power, financial power, where people were subjugated by the powerful. That's Ephesus. Can you see shades of modern America in Ephesus? It's not hard to to think about, is it? I mean, a place of immense power and influence, a place where wealth flourishes, a place where ideas are constantly argued, where idolatry is rampant and where sex has become a commodity to be traded and sold. So there's a lot we have in common. Now, that's the city. That's just a rough sketch of the city itself. Now, what happens when Paul comes there? Now, this happens in Acts 19. You don't need to open to it. I'm just going to, to just sort of skim through what happens here. In Acts chapter 19, Now this is years before Paul writes the letter, okay? Here's what happens. He comes, he finds a group of believers, And he prays for them, lays hands on them, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they begin uh, flowing in in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and Paul goes into the synagogue where he usually comes, and he preaches, right? So he's preaching to Jews in the synagogue who don't yet know about Jesus, or haven't yet seen him and embraced him as the fulfillment of everything that they've been hoping for. So he does that for three months. He does that uh, everywhere he goes. He stops for three—this is a little longer time for him, three months, and after three months— they, kind of, they basically throw him out. He's too controversial. They don't like him. They say, Paul, you're done. You no longer get time. I know you're a rabbi. I know you have credentials, but you're, you're done. So they, they, they send him out, and, and, and he says, okay. And he ends up going to one of these lecture halls. I mean, this is a very scholarly city. He goes into a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know who Tyrannus was, We know he had to endure dinosaur jokes his whole life, which is unfortunate, but he goes into the Hall of Trance. He was either the owner or he was one of the lecturers who, like, was there so often, that's just what he was known for. So Paul probably either took the whole morning or the whole afternoon every day, and he would lecture, and he would talk about God, and he would talk about Jesus, and he would connect all these dots and tell people there's a better way of living. Now Paul usually is on the move, right? He's hopping all over the place. He wants to go to the next place. He's got itchy feet. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Jerusalem. All these things, but he stops at the school of Tyrannus and he teaches there for two whole years. And it just like it doesn't give us much detail there of like wait a minute, whoa 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 slow down. Like I want to know what he was doing in this time. But here's what it tells us. It says that everyone throughout all of Asia heard the gospel. They heard his message. So you have to picture this. He's there every day and, and word's getting out. Dude, there is, a, there is a guy that's teaching and he's brilliant and you've got to come here. So new people are come, Tourists are coming in. Sailors are coming in. Before they go to the temple of Artemis, they're going to pop in and hear this crazy lecture because everyone's talking about it. Now, it's not just his oratory. It's more than that. It's the fact that miracles seem to follow him. It's the fact that people who are sick come and he prays for them and they get better. It's the fact that people who have evil spirits manifesting, that he tells them to go away, and they go away. In fact, it gets so crazy that miracles are abounding and weird stuff is happening. People are like, hi, my sister couldn't be here to listen to you today because, well, she's dying, so she's at home. Can you pray for this handkerchief, and I'll give it to her, and maybe she'll be healed, and they would be healed. Like, really crazy stuff, right? That's what's happening. And, 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 and people's minds are so blown by the gospel, they're having such radical transformations that they're taking things they invested a lot of money and time in and burning them, like their books of spells that they were dealing with witchcraft and all this stuff. They would, are just like burning them. They're like, we're done. We're following Jesus now. And it says this, the word of the Lord was triumphing mightily. He was on the move. Here, here's the extent of it, okay? Here's the extent of it. We would call this revival nowadays, only this is the first time they had been awakened. So it's more like revival, not revival. Vival in Ephesus. There you go. That's what we should have called this whole thing. So they, it's so complete that here's what happens. The silversmiths and the temple treasury starts losing money. Because people aren't going and buying these little trinkets anymore. They're not going like they used to to the temple of Artemis. And so this guy is like, he's like the head of all the silversmiths union. He gets them together and he's like, Paul is ruining our business. And they appeal to people's patriotism. They're like, he doesn't believe in Artemis. Therefore, he hates all, you know. And so, so soon, because everyone's packed in here, they have a riot, and they're rioting against Paul and these people who are going in and trashing the goddess, they say. And soon, there are thousands of people that fill that amphitheater and are like crying for blood. Paul wants to go out and talk to him. imagine that? His friends are like, that's not a good idea. They're on the verge of lynching two of his, his, his friends and cooler heads ultimately prevail that day and they say, remember, we have a court of law and things like that, we can't do this. So people disperse and then Paul leaves the city. But you know God's moving when the whole economy is affected. So that's the story. There's the background in the story. You ready to get into the letter now? All right, here we go. The letter itself, this is many years later. Paul's writing this probably in about 61 AD. Um, So it's been over 10 years. Here's his greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just like a whole praise paragraph, okay? He's like, this is how awesome God is, (laughs) who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This whole paragraph is basically saying, praise God, look what he's done for us. Look what he's done. Now, this passage is not about individuals. It's about us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who are in Christ. And saying he has predestined for us beautiful and unbelievable things. I know some have read this and do read this today in a very individual at an individual level. And part of that is is theology, and part of that I frankly think is culture. Because we want to put ourselves in the midst of this. But I don't think, let me let me spell this out for you. I don't think he's saying, you, Jason Haig have been picked for salvation from before from eternity past and this other person hasn't so praise god that you've been picked i actually don't think that's what he's saying okay if you disagree with me on that that's totally fine i i I, we have we have a plethora of theological opinions here and we're not going to kick you out so that's okay we can have differing opinions but here's what I think he's saying. Can I, I, I propose it? Because if you're looking at it, you see words like predestined and things like that. And you're like, well, it says predestined. Well, yes, because he planned things for us a long, long time ago. I don't think that plan, however, is causative. I think what he's saying is this. Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me state it. let me state it in an analogy here. You guys this morning were predestined to sing that song, Rainmaker, Miracle Worker. You were predestined. You know why? Because Josh and Carlton and the team, they planned those songs for this group. So when you availed yourself, when you decided, I'm going to come, you opted in to that destiny. Do you see what I'm saying? That it was a corporate thing. In the same way, I planned this message for you. Because I planned this message for the 9 o'clock service and the 11 o'clock service. You're not that special. It's the same one. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? So here, in other words, here's what, here's what I'm proposing Paul is saying. Again, if you disagree with me, that's okay. You don't have to get mad. And if you get mad, you can talk to Joshua. That's fine. Um, you, yeah, <laughs> I think what he's saying is simply this. You guys, the church, if you love Jesus and you do, you have incredible things before you. You have an inheritance and God is so good. He's blessed you with everything because you're part of the church and he planned all of this for the church because you're his kids and he planned all of this for his kids. Isn't that good news? So, we're going to continue. Here's what he, he he keeps going. This is a really good chapter. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the course of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, look at this, he, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." In other words, when you believe in the gospel, and it's more than just intellectual, like, okay, like checking a box, like, okay, I believe that. When you believe with your life, when you give yourself to him, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. Here's the way, here's the, way the scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says, that word guarantee, he's basically saying, the Holy Spirit is the down payment on your whole inheritance that you get through Jesus. Isn't that something? He's giving us his spirit and one day we're going to be with him personally and see the entire glory of the Father and the glory of Jesus Christ. Like all of that is coming. And the promise is, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and he's going to take you to that time. Isn't that amazing? Now, he keeps going. For this reason... and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, <clears throat> but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him, gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me break this down. I think here's what he's saying. He wants us, he wants the church to understand what we have. He is praying that we get an inkling of how great we've been blessed. See, the city of Ephesus is powerful, right? The city has a lot to offer in the ways of wisdom and prestige and wealth and pleasure, all of that. But none of it holds a candle to what we have been given. Jesus, he says, is above everything rule. He's above every power. He's greater than anything you find in Ephesus and anything you find in America. We're in this weird place now where this is controversial to say this. Well, it was actually in in that day too because people didn't like the fact that some were extolling Jesus over Artemis. They didn't think that was quite right because the city was supposed to be dedicated to Artemis. That's a little bit where we're at today. How can you say Jesus is better? Well, because he's the son of God who stepped down out of heaven and put on flesh and died and then raised from the dead. Who else has done that? He's better. He's better than Caesar, Paul says. You know that was the subversive message of the church? That Jesus is Lord. What he's actually saying is Jesus is Caesar. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Caesar. He's over this even the highest name that we have. Whatever it is that you take glory in, whether it's power, whether it's finances, whether it's pleasure, Jesus is greater than those things. That's what he's saying. Bring it into modern day. He's greater than Caesar. Jesus is greater than any political figure that you could hope for. He's greater than Obama. He's greater than Trump. He's greater than your side or my side or their side or whoever, lest we think that any of our sides are like totally lying. Because they're not. He's over them. He's better. Whatever you put hope in, he's better. Are you hearing me? I'm preaching. Is that okay? He's better. He's greater than wealth. He's greater than any system of wealth. He's greater than business. He's greater than socialism. He's greater than capitalism. He's greater than free markets or closed markets. He's greater. What we have in him is greater than what this country can give you. It's not the same thing. All right, you still with me? He's greater than every spiritual being or system, above any sort of mysticism, above self-styled saviors, or every would-be Messiah bows their knee to him. He is simply better. Now, I understand in saying that, the world isn't going to like you. Because you're like, what about this or this? And I'm saying, I hear you, I know, yeah, impressive, he's better. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. No one else has stepped out of heaven and died for you, and then actually come back. No one else has given you his spirit. He's simply greater than every power that you could imagine. And that's what Paul, he's pleading, just like I'm pleading with you. He's saying, "I'm. Pl- I, please hear this. I'm praying the Lord will reveal to you just what you have in Jesus because I don't think you understand how, what you have. And I pray that he gives you wisdom and revelation that your hearts may be opened and come alive. This chapter's actually kind of brought me alive again. The more I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is good and this is true and I so easily forget this. You know why? Because we get stuck in the moment. And we look at the things that are in front of us, the good things and the bad things, and they feel greater. You know, they feel bigger. They feel more powerful. And Paul says, no, they're not. They're not. The Ephesians didn't like it. We might not like it today, but the fact is nothing holds a candle to Jesus. Look at what—look at the very beginning. We already read this part. I started looking at all the times this word, this like, like prepositional phrase in Christ or through Christ was used over and over again. He's talking about all the spiritual blessings and the inheritance we have. All of it is, is in Christ. You see this? He's blessed us in Christ. What does that mean? He's blessed us like giving us lots of money. No, it has nothing to do with that. He's blessed us by giving us Christ. See, the blessing... Is in christ and he gave us christ you see what i'm saying right he chose us in christ did he choose you for your talents no he doesn't need you (laughs) he doesn't need me either he's he's called you in christ he has predestined us to adoptions as sons through jesus through him he's blessed us in the beloved who's christ in him we have redemption we have forgiveness in Christ. He's given us Christ in Christ. Are you, are you with me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's done all of these things in Christ. That's where it all happens. And in Him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. There's this old, this old thing like, you remember the old jokes when, like, so this guy dies, right? Maybe you pick like a sports figure. <laughs> Maybe, maybe you are a Cowboys fan, and so you, you pick some, some guy from another team, and you tell this joke. So, you know, the quarterback of the Redskins dies, and he goes to heaven, right? And he goes to his mansion, and everything's based on the mansion thing. And then there's some twist in the end that God, that's God's mansion that has the Cowboys flag or something like that. We have, like, all these jokes that, that used to flow, and they're all based on this silly idea that you get your own mansion. Do you know you don't get your own mansion? Did you know that? Did you know you don't get this like, oh, you get, you get a cash? You, you get this massive check when you get to heaven. It's, no, you don't get this like little inheritance. You, your inheritance comes in Jesus, you see? So the, it's the fact that Jesus is there and you are with him. That's the inheritance. See, the truth of the matter is there is one house. There is one mansion in heaven and he prepares a room for us in his house. And that's the whole picture here. The picture is, you don't have an individual destiny apart from him. Should I say that again? You don't have an individual destiny apart from Jesus. What he's promised us is not fame, is not money, is not power, any of these things. He's promised us his son. And the blessing comes through him. You might say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have resources. I don't have power. I don't have anything. But you're wrong. (laughs) I'm just going to make people angry today. You're wrong. Yeah, he's better than all these things. You're, (laughs) You're wrong. Because if you have Jesus, he has all those things. You see what I'm saying? He has all those things. When the word of the Lord is triumphing mightily, he's getting the glory. That means we're blessed, not because wealth and power belong to us, but because we belong to him. I think today many of us still think in terms of power like the Ephesians did. I think a lot of times in church people get hung up on just what we've seen of like celebrity or destiny. And I mean, when I grew up, it was all and I grew up in like a missions environment, a really great environment, but still the question was always what sort of big international ministry are you going to have and, and all of these things and what's your destiny and everything's praying about your personal destiny and all these things. And, and it, I think this is unhealthy. I think we're, we're, if, we're, if we're thinking this way, then we're missing what Paul is saying. The thing is, he might want to start something big on the, ex- the outside with you. He might, he might do that, but he probably won't. We weren't made to be put on a pedestal. We were made to put Jesus on a pedestal. And there's a big difference. We can be free and be anonymous and unimpressive. We can be free to live quiet lives where nobody knows our names, but they all know his name. You know, this was one of the big lessons that we had in this whole great Cuba adventure. This was one of the things Pastor John had pushed for so long was simply this. It's okay to be anonymous. In fact, it's probably better to be anonymous. To keep your head down and let him have the glory. You weren't made to hold all that glory, you guys. Neither was I. None of us were made to be put up and exalted. We are made to exalt him. Reminds me of that song, let the weak say I am strong, let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Here's what Paul is saying in summary of chapter one. Here's what I think he's saying. I am so thankful that you serve God and I pray you understand what you have in Jesus. He's better than any of the temptations around you. In him, you have it all. In him, You have it all, now why should we believe him? He's just one guy. Here's here's why I say, (laughs) here's why we believe Paul. Because Paul is writing this from prison. He is so excited for these people and he's gushing about how amazing life with Jesus is when Paul has nothing. He's given up his reputation He's been beaten and stoned his whole life. He's constantly moving. People constantly hate him. He starts churches. People get mad at him. They throw him out. Constantly opposed at every turn. And here he is finally after being beaten and left for dead so many times. Now he is like shackled in prison. And what is he doing? He's writing a letter saying, I have nothing, but I have it all because I have Jesus. He's better. Paul believed it. Do you? Do you understand what you have in Christ? Or does your heart get pulled to the trappings of the culture? Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient? Do you really believe that he's better? I pray like Paul that you will and that all of us will. One of the things we wanna do through this journey is to take time to reflect and so we have some, some half sheets. So as you're exiting today, we have people at both these exits here to, to just hand you a thing. It's, it's got some of the, um, the scripture here and it has some, some questions and I encourage you to take some time and, and process through. It's a couple of questions I just, I just read here. To take some time and process. Do I really believe this? Do I find myself getting pulled toward the trappings of our culture? And why? Why do I? so I encourage you to do that can we stand together